Job chapter 7, I'm going to read to about the 10th verse. Job says, Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages, so I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? And the night be ended. For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him any more. In the opening chapters of the book of Job, we saw the confrontation, if you will, that took place in heaven. In chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, we learned of Job's despair. And then we discovered the unkind and unfounded denunciation of Eliphaz the Temanite in chapter 4 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 27. In chapter 6 and 7, Job is going to mount a defense. And like I said, in chapter 6... He addresses Eliphaz, the Temanite. And in chapter 7, his attention turns towards heaven. Once again, he expresses his desire to die. Job accuses his friends of being as unreliable and as empty as a stream in a hot and burning desert in chapter 6 verses 14 through 21. He challenges Eliphaz to show him where he went wrong in chapter 6 verse 22 to stop assuming that he's guilty. In chapter 7 Job's defense shifts like I said from Eliphaz to Elohim. Job seems to be speaking to God and as he speaks to God He points out that life is long and hard in verses 1 through 5. That Job endures his life like a miserable laborer. That life is but a breath in verses 6 through 10. People die and they don't come back to life in this world in verses 6 through 10. Job asks the question, look, what were you thinking? Why have you made me the target of your interest? In verses 11 through 21. So Job will plead with the Lord. Because remember Job still doesn't understand. He has no understanding of of what's gone on in heaven. And the supernatural issues at hand. Job feels abandoned. Perhaps even cursed by God. Yet he still longs for the Lord. He desires God's presence Even in the midst of his pain and hardship and suffering, 
Because Job wants what almost everybody wants. Peace. Comfort. Isn't that exactly what you want? Peace and comfort. A real peace. A lasting peace. A settled peace. And so Job begins his cry in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says... Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? And are not his days also like the days of a hired man? What Job does is he likens himself and his his life to the service of a hired man. Now remember, Job was wealthy. Job had servants galore. Job had hired, I'm going to suggest to you, hundreds and hundreds of people. Job has been a faithful servant to the Lord. And in the past, his service was full of joy. It was full of prosperity. It was full of happiness. And now it's marked by what seems like drudgery and slavery and hostility. In other words, like the the person who's a hired person, at least when a hired person gets to go home. In verse 2 it says, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages. Job is pointing out that even hired workers experience a little bit of a rest. There's a time out. There's a break. You can take a break from the labor and you can get a little respite under the shade tree. Like the hired man who eagerly works for wages. Hired workers experience a little respite. They experience some reward for their work. The servant can anticipate relief and reward. But this is Job's way of saying, there's no relief for me. There's no reward for me. This isn't for me. And then he says in verse 3, So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise and the night be ended? He's in such pain. He's in such agony. He's in such torture that every night is a vigil. Every night he goes in and out of consciousness, and he wonders if the sun is ever going to come up. Now, this is an interesting insight for those of you who are Bible scholars or Bible teachers or, or you want to be a Bible teacher because you see the book of Job doesn't tell us how long Job suffered. Was it a day? Was it a week? Was it a month? Was it several months? But here we're given a clue. In verse 3 he says, So I've been allotted months. Of futility. The implication being a significant amount of time has gone by. And then he describes his circumstance my flesh is caked with worms and dust, my skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. What a horrible image! Can you imagine? The sores, the open boils, they dry up and then they scab and then they break open again and then the pus begins to run and it scabs up again and then worms find their way. They fester into the sores, they, ha- they lay their eggs, they hatch their offspring and those grow inside of his body. 
They found a home. They've reproduced in these open sores. And that's the picture of his illness. And so when life seems brief and hopeless, Job says in verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Once again, we see Job's poetic touch. The Hebrew word for hope is a word that sounds in the Hebrew language very much like a thread or a cord. And so Job sees his life as days without hope, like not even a thread of hope. Imagine. He sees himself and he's looking at the weaver's shuttle. And for those of you who have ever been to Turkey or the Middle East or even to New Mexico or Arizona and you've seen people doing weavings and, and how they, 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 they weave the thread throughout the shuttle. Imagine you're looking at the weaver's shuttle. You're trying To see a picture, you're trying to see an image, you're trying to see a design, you're trying to get a sense of what is being made that's right before you and you never get to see the sense. I think what he's talking about is not only the uncertainty of what's going on in his life, but where his life is going, but also he's talking about the temporalness of life, the brevity of life. You live, you, you grow up, you get older, you get married, you have children, your children's children begin to have children, and all of a sudden your life comes and goes. But sometimes pain makes it impossible to see into the future. Sometimes today's pain makes tomorrow's hope disappear. And so Job is wondering about his life. What about the person who lives in in the constant pain of the present? He's unable to look past life miserable circumstances. And so again, all of the people that he's known and all of the people that he even employed, remember what Job has done. He's climbed the peak of prosperity and now he finds himself in the pit of poverty. And he wonders, how can I see past today? You see, when a person's life seems so brief and so hopeless and so painful, it's hard to make good choices. And so Job cries out again with unbelievable honesty when your best memories seem like they're past in verses 7 through 10. He says in verse 7, oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Job senses that his life has already passed. He senses that the best and happiest moments of his life aren't in the future. They're in the past. For Job, it was in the past when he got married and when he had children. And that he experienced the prosperity and the abundance. The, the sense of God's presence and the sense of God's favor. And the sense of God's goodness. Job sensed that because of the pain in the present. That not only could he not see into the future. But that he thought that he would never have any kind of future whatsoever. That's why he says, oh, remember that my life is a breath. He says in verse 8, the eye of him who sees me, 
will see me no more. This is Job's way of saying, look at me. Remember in the earlier chapter, he said, look at me. It's his way of saying, take a good, hard look at me because I'm not going to be around for very long. Job senses that he has a terminal and a fatal disease and that he is going to quickly die. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. It's, it's his way of saying, even as you're looking at me right at this very moment, the next thing that you could probably see is me dead. He says in verse 9, as the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Job is convinced that he has a terminal disease, a fatal disease, one in which you're not going to come back from. The few days that he has left looks like it's only going to bring more misery and more pain, and he likens it to a cloud that you see in the sky, and then the cloud is gone. It appears, it disappears. Do you understand what's happening? Job is mentally and emotionally making funeral arrangements. Even as he is there and even as he's having this conversation, he's imagining himself that they're coming by. They're going to pick up his body. They're going to take him to the place where he's going to be buried. Job is in a sense saying, I'm not going to make it back home. Remember, he is in a ash heap and his friends have surrounded him. In a very real sense, this is almost like a hospice situation where for those of you who have older loved ones and you've taken them from the hospital to the hospice and that person knows, they sense, I'm never going home. I'm not going to go back home where I loved my children and I raised my children and I played with my grandchildren. I'm never going back to my bedroom. I'm never going to look through my drawers ever again. I'm not going home. Like a man or a woman, this is his final stop. It's his way of saying, I'm not going to see my neighbors ever again. Job's life has become pain every single day. Destitution. Job has come to a place in his life where he's, he's struggling over any kind of, of visible purpose for his life. That's the kind of hopelessness and despair. And so the next section in verses 11 and 12, when agony and bitter pain are your constant companion, he goes and he says in verse 11, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent? That you set a guard over me. Let me help you understand what you just read. In verse 11 when he says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. It's Job's way of saying, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to go ahead and say what's on my mind. And I'm going to speak what's in my heart. By the way, we've already talked about this. Does God already know what's going on in your mind? Does God already know what's going on in your heart? Job cries. He admits that he can't keep silent. Job needs to express. 
the anguish of his spirit. He needs a way to communicate the bitterness of his soul. Now again, I want you to think about what you're looking at and what you're reading and who is with him. Job knows that human counselors might misunderstand him and might misjudge him. They already have. He understands that he's with people. He understands that those people look on the outward circumstances, but they don't know the truth about what's going on inside of Job's heart. Job also knows that God knows everything. And because God knows everything, he knows the truth about the beginning and the end and every step along the way. Because he knows about what you've said, what, what has been left unsaid, what you did and what you didn't do. Job is going to make his case to the Lord. David McKenna suggests that Job is in fact asking the question, why me? Why me? Job has come to that place where where he's asking the question, okay, I know that other people lose their children and I know other people lose their livelihood and I know other people lose their health, but how, help me understand why is this happening to me? Job reflects on the character of God and then he asks the question that sometimes we're reluctant to ask. We, we're afraid to say it out loud. Lord, please explain my life. Please explain my circumstances. David McKenna writes, quote, He, that is God, knows that Job speaks from an intolerable suffering and cries from an unshakable faith and then tests the limits of honest doubt, unquote. And I like that because... In a very real way, it gives you permission and me permission to say, Lord, I don't understand everything that's going on in my life and I don't understand everything that's going on in my circumstances. And see, you might be, as they say in California, flush or full. You might have everything going for you here tonight. You might not have everything going for you tonight. You're troubled in your mind. You're troubled in your circumstances. And you cry out to God and you wonder about an explanation. And so in verse 12 when Job says, Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? Remember in this particular instance, what is the sea? It's a vast ocean with waves coming in and out. But it's something that has to be restrained. Here, the sea and the sea serpent are things that have to be controlled, have to be restrained. Job is, in effect, asking the question, I don't understand. Am I such a threat that I have to be caged or I have to be restrained? Is there something that I don't know about? We say, Job is, in effect, saying, have you put me in time out? Is there a reason why I happen to be here at this particular place and in this particular time? If you've ever broken a limb, if you've ever wound up in a hospital, if you've found yourself in a circumstance where one week becomes two weeks and two weeks becomes six weeks and you're sick of looking at the 
at the television and you're going, what is this? Why am I in time out? And so, some scholars suggest that he's in effect saying, why are you keeping me on such a short leash? Other scholars even suggest that God is employing, or Job is employing a mythological monster. I heard one writer say, quote, he's expressing his frustration and deep anguish, or they, they serve as symbols of chaos and the forces of evil, unquote. In other words, for the person who says, look, why is Job talking about sea serpents? Why is he talking about gigantic reptiles that occupy the oceans when everybody knows that the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that, that the point that Job is making isn't so much an appeal to a mythological creature, but to the reality of things that needed to be restrained. So what is it about Job and Job's circumstance that makes it feel like there are cosmic forces at work? And that's the point that Job is making. All of a sudden, Job, even though he doesn't know about the the, the circumstance that has taken place in chapter 1, he's beginning to sense there's greater forces at work here. There seems to be cosmic forces at work here. And see, you might be thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. Uh, You know, cosmic forces, the fight between good and evil, a cosmic conflict. But then you go forward into the New Testament and you realize that this is exactly what Paul says. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. That there really is a cosmic battle that is taking place all around you. And that the forces of good and the forces of evil have determined that they're going to use your life, your heart, and your circumstances to affirm whether or not God is good. Whether or not he can be trusted. And this is interesting. Because Job is in effect saying, Lord, am I a threat to you? What's the right answer? No. Maybe Job should have said, Satan, am I a threat to you? See, you laugh because I think you begin to understand. Are you a threat to God? No. But when you live your life for the Lord, when you live your life for Jesus, when you, when you get up in the morning and you pray for your family and your friends and your church and your nation, when you begin to intercede on behalf of your unsaved family and friends, when you begin to plead with the Lord for the salvation of the people who are closest to you, when you begin to cry out for God because you want to live a life of purity and humility before Lord, the Lord, you want to seek the Lord and you want to serve the Lord and you want to honor the Lord, who's, who's, who's at risk then? Who's at risk at that particular point? For Job, the suffering is so intense and the pain is so constant and death is so near that all of the governors of mind and heart 
begin to be stripped away. As Job begins to ask what seems like unanswerable questions. All pretense is gone. And Job will voice his feelings and his fears and his anxieties and his disappointments. Look at verse 13. He says, when I say, my bed will comfort me. My couch will ease my complaint. He's holding out hope that sleep might offer some respite, some comfort from the constant, continual pain. And I think I've, I've told you that maybe some of you have experienced circumstances in your life where the pain was so excruciating and so unbearable, it literally kept you up at night. You thought that maybe you could go to sleep and in your sleep, There was the hope, the promise that some of the pain would go away. That somehow you would get a good night's sleep. I remember one time I I was in a rollover car accident. And in this rollover car accident, um, the car flipped over and it literally flipped on the roof. And the top of the roof caved in right on top of my head. And as it caved in on my head, it compressed my spine and the vertebrae between my shoulder blades snapped and it broke my back and my body went into shock my back was broken and I, and I know I passed out and then uh, a, a Colorado State Patrol officer came and called for an ambulance and the ambulance came and so they were trying to check me and to see if I, if, if I knew where I was and what was going on and they say tell me your name I said my name is Gino They said, who's the president of the United States? And I said, that all depends on who you ask. (laughs) And that's what they did. They laughed. They go, sense of humor intact. (laughs) He has a sense of presence. He, He understands what's going on. But the pain then all of a sudden came. And they took me to a dog and cat hospital down in, um, it's past Colorado Springs like you're going towards it's near Pueblo. It's past Pueblo. There's like, there's like a sex change hospital there. And that's where they took me. And so I said, I authorize you to do nothing. I just couldn't risk it. So they send me back to Denver. The pain comes. But I can't sleep. And then when I finally do sleep, I have a dream. And you know what I'm dreaming? I'm in a car accident. I'm dreaming that I'm in a car accident. And all of the pain associated with the car accident happens. That's what Job is saying. He's saying, look, I was hoping that sleep would somehow comfort me. That my couch would ease my complaint. In verse 14, he says, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. In other words, in the pain and in the circumstance, if for whatever reason he's able to fall asleep, as soon as he does, there's terrifying visions. He can't get a night's sleep. Even his sleep is filled with terrifying nightmares. Now, again, Job thinks that God sent these nightmares for reasons that he doesn't understand. Why indeed? Did the nightmares come from God? 
Did the nightmares come from Satan? Was the nightmares somehow affiliated or somehow had something to do with his physical circumstances? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible does say that God can speak to us in dreams. The the Bible says that certainly dreams and visions can be an opportunity that God can communicate with us. But Job questions. I try to sleep, but even if I I sleep, I have nightmares. But here's the key. Why not some respite? Why not just give me one minute? Or five minutes? Or an hour? How about one day? One whole day from the time that the sun comes up till the sun goes down that I have at least one moment's peace. In a press release for the Discovery Channel, I noticed that there was a documentary. It was called Pain Matters. And the producer's note reads this way, quote, Chronic pain can limit people's ability to participate in fundamental tasks of daily living. It can also have an impact on a person's economic and physical and emotional well-being. The documentary says, while there are a variety of options available to treat chronic pain, it often cannot be cured. Often it can only be managed. The goal of pain management is to help the patient improve function and resume day-to-day activities. It went on and it said that the survey results reflect these challenges in pain management. Although most people with pain, and in this particular instance, these were people who self-identified with chronic pain, constant pain. 69% of the people said that they experienced chronic daily pain. One-third, 31%, never or rarely discuss the pain. They feel like they have no option. No choice than to simply live in the pain. It says many people with chronic pain don't utilize therapies that are available to them. Like exercise or physical therapies or other therapies in order to help with chronic pain management. But guess what? You never realize how important pain is until you're in pain. And then now, all of a sudden, sensitivity and compassion become an important part of your life. Jonathan Edwards, who's been called the last great Puritan, himself no stranger to pain, wrote, quote, real pain can alone cure us of imaginary ills, unquote. No kidding, huh? Real pain can cure us of imaginary ills. Proust writes, illness is the most heeded of doctors. To goodness and wisdom we only make promises. To pain we obey. No wonder C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pains. It It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Sometimes pain is exactly what we need in order for for us to say, okay, Lord, I'm listening. I'm willing to hear whatever you have to say. 
The Bible teaches that the day is coming when pain will be no more. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, and there shall be no more sorrow, there shall be no more crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. But Job has never read the book of Revelation. He suspects that there might be such a place. And he so desperately wants to go there. So when even a horrible death seems better than a miserable life. And so he talks about that in verse 15. He says, so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. Here's here's Job's complaint. How can my body continue to live when my soul Desperately wants to die. Have you ever met anybody like that? Or has that ever been you? Where you hurt so bad on the inside. Hope is gone. The future seems far, far away. And your body won't cooperate. Your heart is broken and your soul seems shattered. But your body clings to life. And so Job asks the question, how can the body continue to live when the soul desperately wants to die? And once again, I I don't think that Job is considering suicide at this point. In other words, he's not saying, I'm going to take my life. Rather, the strangling may refer to the symptoms of his disease. In other words, remember, he has an ongoing disease that constantly threatens to kill him, choking, gasping for air. He says in verse 16, he comes right out and says it, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. These are the words of a person who wants to die. The pain is intense. He despises his life, and he pleads with God, please, please, let me die. Job can't imagine life other than a terrible life, other than a dark life, other than an empty life, other than a purposeless life. Like the person who suffers a catastrophe, or a sudden loss, or illness. For the person who looks at their life and their future seems impossible, that's exactly what Job is. He sees his future as worthless, meaningless, useless. For Job, life just means one more day to be in pain. And so... In verses 17 through 19, he talks about being an unwelcome target. Look at verse 17. He says, what is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? Now, for some of you, that text might sound familiar. You say, I think I read something like that in the Bible somewhere. And in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, remember the Psalm of David. David says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should visit him? 
when David writes, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should visit him? It's a happy time. He's saying, Lord, why would you even consider me to love me, to bless me? Job is saying, Lord, who am I that you would single me out of all of the life forms in the universe for special discipline, sorrow, difficulty? Again, David McKenna points out the paradox. Job is saying, quote, God, you're great. God, I am little. God, why do you even bother with me? God, why do you even care about human beings? Why do you visit human beings? Why would you even test human beings? And this is the paradox. Because it opens up a window into the New Testament that talks for us about Jesus. You see, the whole New Testament is the answer to that question. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? Why do you even care? God, why do you even care about our life and about our circumstance? Why would you even care if I go to heaven or if I go to hell, if I live or if I die, if I'm good or if I'm bad, if I do this or if I do that? Why would you even care? And the Bible's clear message, the the compelling message of the Bible is God does care. He cares about you. He cares about your life and he cares about your circumstance. He cares about your mental and emotional circumstances. He cares about your family. He cares about what's going on inside of you. And because he cares, he orchestrates all of human life so that you can be saved. He creates a mechanism so that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob is going to have sons, and Judah, and Judah is going to have sons, and David is going to be born, and Solomon is going to be born. And as you go marching through the history of Israel, that God is going to bring forth the Messiah, and that Messiah is going to redeem you and reconcile you and forgive you. So that your life will have meaning and hope and purpose and direction. And so in verse 15, actually in verse 18, it says that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment. Do you understand what Job is saying? That you should visit him every morning and that you should test him every every moment. Job feels like God is probing him and testing him and winnowing him. Job feels like he's some sort of lab rat or cosmic project. It's as if God is in heaven and he's asking the question, how much pain can a single person endure before they will crack? That's how he feels. And so he says in verse 19, How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? In verse 19, when he says, how long will you not look away from me? The the implication is stop testing me, stop trying me, stop doing whatever it is that you're doing. And 
swallow my saliva is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language, which means for a single moment. And you probably already know what that meant. Have you ever said, look, I just need time to swallow. Gulp. I don't even have time to swallow my saliva. It's a moment in time. How long will the experiment last? How long will the pain last? When will you ease up on the pain? God, will you ever leave me alone and just let me die? He's asking the question. Why is God so interested in me? Why target me for such intense, unrelenting, unanswered pain? Maybe at a difficult time in your life, you ask that same question. Lord, why have you singled me out? Why, why am I so important to you? What is it about me that you would even take the time to single me out, set me aside, and say, I have a plan for you, and I have a purpose for you. Because you see, the truth is, I love you, and I want to redeem you, and I want to reconcile you. And so, at the end, Job says, when you wonder if you're guilty of some unknown sin, and, and you're seeking forgiveness in verses 20 and 21, look what it says in verse 20, have I sinned? Now remember what he already knows. There's nothing in his heart or in his conscience. What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Again, Job expresses that he feels like he's a special object of discipline. Job knows it's a bad idea to curse God. Remember, his wife has already said, curse God and die. And Job has already said, that's a bad idea. That's not a helpful idea. Job knows it's a bad idea to do that. But Job is dangerously close. He's wondering exactly how much he can take. He's asking the question, what have I done to you? Job is asking the question about his innocence. He knows that he hasn't committed any deliberate sin, but is there some unknown transgression that he's completely unaware of? Job refers to the Lord. Look at the title that he gives him, the watcher of men. Isn't that interesting? In Psalm 31, 33, it says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves, same word, watches, preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Job believes that God knows everything about everything, that he's the watcher. That he knows the beginning from the end. Remember, Job believes that God knows everything. Remember, he's appealing to God, the person who knows men and everything about him. And therefore, God knew that Job was being singled out. In other words, whatever is going on, Job, Job knows that God knows the truth. God knows the truth about his life, and God knows the truth about his relationships, and God knows the truth about his circumstances. And so Job also believes 
that he's being singled out. Job believes God was intentionally causing him deliberate pain. Now, Job has already accused God of of using him for target practice. Remember in chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Look, you're using me for target practice. You're even using poisoned arrows. And now he accuses God of being an inspector and and a jailer. Henry Ward Beecher wrote, quote, We think God is destroying us. When he's really tuning us. We ask the question, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? I don't know the answer to every single question. But if I were to guess an answer, I'm going to guess that 99 out of 100 times, The answer is, I'm making you like Jesus. I'm doing this because I want to make you more like Christ. I want to make you dependent. I want to make you humble. I want to make you committed. I want to make you faithful. The Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. The Bible says that every morning God finds you awake, and every day begins the new drama. How can I make you like Jesus? How can I make you like Jesus? How can I pull out the stops? What is it that I can do to make you more like Jesus, to make you more dependent on the Lord? Now, I want you to think about what's happening. In verse 21, it says, Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will, you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Do you, do you understand what Job is saying? Lord, why don't you just let it go? If I've done something, just forgive me. Don't you understand? I'm getting ready to die. And once I'm dead, guess what, Lord? Whatever you wanted for me from this life is pretty much over. You know what it's like? Do you have children or grandchildren? And that has your child ever said to you, I'm going to leave. One of these days I'm going to be gone. And you're going to be sorry. One of these days I'm going to be gone and you're going to be sorry. And you said, yeah, tell me when that's going to be. Job, in a, in a kind of an immaturity, will say, pretty soon I'm going to be gone and you're going to be Sorry. But his question is an interesting question. And it tells us something about the nature and the character of God. Why then don't you pardon my transgression? That's a serious question. If I've done something wrong, if there's some hidden offense, why not just forgive me? Why not take away the iniquity? You know why this is important? Because this is a question that a friend asks a friend in order to maintain friendship. And fellowship and relationship. Job believes not only that God knows everything about everything, Job believes 
that God is love. Job believes that God's desire is to forgive people. What if Job believes exactly what's recorded in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve transgress and remember as they were walking and they were, covered, they, were, they were exposed in their nakedness and remember God cried out and he said, where are you? I think Job believes that God is a friend and that God is love and that God desires to forgive people. So why doesn't he? This is one of those questions that I get asked on my radio program. Look, if God is such a great God and if he's just a wonderful God and if he's such a supreme and superior being, why doesn't he just give a blanket amnesty to every single person? Why doesn't he just forgive everyone everything? And the right answer, of course, is that the gospel is God's answer to that very question. You see, God is love, but God is also just, and God is good. And God looks at wickedness and evil, and he's provided a solution for it. Any person who's ever read the New Testament knows that in Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The truth is that the gospel is the answer to this question. Why doesn't God just forgive everyone? And the answer, of course, is this is exactly what he seeks to do in the person of Jesus Christ. It isn't that you have to eat glass or you have to climb to the top of a mountain or that you have to memorize every single book in the Bible or even a certain number of chapters and verses. The Bible says, come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible says, David says in the psalm, in Psalm 6-2, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so, the psalmist cries out for a savior who will come, who will forgive, who will redeem, who will reconcile. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Imagine a world that says, God, why don't you forgive everybody? And God says, I'm willing to do exactly that. Are you willing to turn from your sin and are you willing to turn to the savior? No, I'm not, I'm not willing to turn from my sin. In other words, you want forgiveness for transgressions, but you don't want a friendship and a relationship with God. You see, that's what God is asking for. He isn't just talking about a carte blanche amnesty for everyone. He's talking about an amnesty because of the life and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so the question remains, God, why don't you just forgive everybody? Why don't you just let it go? Why don't you pretend like it never happened? 
And God says, I can't pretend like it never happened, but here's what I'm willing to do. I am willing to take all of the blame. I am willing to take all of the punishment. I am willing to take all of what's necessary in order to forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you. And all it means is that you have to trust Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. I don't want to trust him. Why? Well, because if I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, he might ask me to turn from my lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience. Well, remember, that's what got you in trouble. It was the rebellion and disobedience that got you in trouble in the first place. And God is willing to forgive the rebellion and the disobedience. He's willing to forgive you and to restore you and reconcile you to himself. Francis Havergal wrote an interesting song. It says, Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, Hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears, sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last, near after distant, gleam after gloom. Love after loneliness, life after tomb, after long agony, rapture after bliss. Right was the pathway leading to this. In the story of Job, and in the conversations that Job is having, Job is eventually going to come to the conclusion that I used to hear about you, but I didn't really understand. I heard about you, and now I've seen you for myself. As difficult as this is, as difficult as the journey that Job is making, it's a journey that's going to result in a deeper fellowship, a more profound friendship, and an ultimate reconciliation with God. You might be reluctant to acknowledge your journey, the path that God has given to you. And even if you're honest with yourself, the path that you chose in many ways for yourself. But in that path, that began in rebellion, disobedience, and disappointment, it can end in joy, in forgiveness, in reconciliation, and hope when you trust Jesus. We're going to have communion in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to pray. To make sure your heart is right with God. 
to give you an opportunity to answer the question, why doesn't God just forgive everybody? And the answer, of course, is God is willing to do exactly that in the person of Jesus, in the most simple verse that you ever learned, that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish. There is forgiveness that's available in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at the journey of Job and we look at his heartfelt cry, that Lord, for many of us, sometimes his questions and his pain are so compelling, so honest, so visceral, that we want to look away. And yet, Lord, we know that Job is beginning to understand sensitivity and compassion. Lord, he knows what it's like to be at the top of the mountain in prosperity. And now he knows what it's like to be in the bottom of the pit in abject poverty. But the one thing that he's always held on to is his integrity. To know you and to love you and to serve you. And Heavenly Father, I pray again for that person who has made doubt a way of life, who has made questioning a part of their composition. Lord, I pray that they would come to a place where that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you. That they would acknowledge that whatever kind of a God there is, it's a God who knows everything about everything. But it's also a God who loves us. Not a God who's willing to keep us from being saved, but has done everything, everything, everything necessary for us to experience love and salvation. And so, Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, I pray that that person would pray a very simple prayer, that they would acknowledge that they're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That his death on the cross is that satisfying solution for the problem of sin. And that for the person who invites Christ into their life and means it. Who's willing to turn from sin and turn to the Savior. That Jesus promises hope, mercy, forgiveness, and a new beginning. And Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts right now. Lord, we know that worship is something that we do, not quietly or passively. Worship isn't just sitting around or waiting for something to happen. In worship, we participate. We get up in our mind and in our heart and we do something different. We want to turn from something and turn towards something else away from sin and towards the Savior. And so, Lord, again, we pray that you prepare our hearts as we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.